Let's turn, if you haven't already, to Revelation 19, shall we? And continue to worship the Lord. If you need a copy of God's word, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they'll be happy to get one into your hands. Revelation 19, last book of the Bible, of course, and nearing one of the last chapters of the Bible. We're nearing the end also of the great tribulation here in chapter 19. The great tribulation. And we're getting to the good stuff. At least that's how some of you have said it to me in recent days. I can't wait till we get to the good stuff. I didn't take that wrongly. I'm preaching the word so you can blame it on the Lord if you didn't like the rest of the stuff thus far. But we are indeed getting to the good stuff. We're here. We're here. Because chapter 19 represents the end of our suffering and the beginning of judgment. And while judgment may not sound like the good stuff, it certainly should to you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because the beginning of judgment means the end of suffering and the beginning for us of celebration. Judgment leads to a celebration of the ages. A celebration, mind you, of great, great anticipation. Oh, I hope if you don't feel that now, in this very moment, that you will by the time we walk out of these doors together. That you will feel an increased, a heightened sense of anticipation for a celebration like none other in your entire life. We've got it coming. And it's a good thing. Celebration of anticipation, something that's called here in this passage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. We're here, and I can't wait to talk about it. You follow along with me. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. I'll read it through verse 10. John, then I heard, the Apostle John is writing, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude... Like the roar of many waters, we just sang about it, just heard the worship team sang about it, sing about it, the roar of many waters. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I got to tell you, one of my fears on this particular passage is that I, I won't do it justice. There is so much here. This is so deep and, 
and yet so nuanced, I, I fear that we're going to just gloss over it because it's such a short passage and we're going to miss its significance. Oh, I pray and I have prayed that that won't be the case. I hope that glory will fill your soul by the time we're done with this passage in the next few weeks. And that's what it's going to take. I don't want to leave any stone unturned. I don't want to leave any treasure undiscovered and underappreciated. That would be a shame. Because when you get right down to it, this passage conveys the hope of our salvation. This passage conveys the pinnacle of our salvation. The pinnacle of everything we hope for and yearn for and desire for in this short life with a long eternity. Everything. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks here to make sure that we see it and savor it for all it's worth. Increasing our anticipation, I hope, and filling our souls with hope eternal. It's that big. And it comes down to six truths. Six truths here for you regarding the marriage supper of the Lamb. Two this week and four next. Maybe four next. Here's the first, starting where John ended in verse 10. It's part of the gospel. The marriage supper of the Lamb is part of the gospel. The good news of Jesus. It's part of the good news of Jesus. Or as John and the angels say it, the testimony of Jesus. Look at verse 10 again. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, to worship the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. Here it is. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus. The things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus did. That's the testimony of Jesus. I'm going to come back to this time and time again here in about the next uh, five or ten minutes on this point in hopes that you will grab a hold of it and the Lord will grab a hold of you and arrest your heart and fill your heart with these truths. I'm going to come back and forth to all of these things. The testimony of Jesus are the things that he said and, and did. So often, we think of the gospel only as Christ's death and resurrection for our salvation, our redemption. He died and rose again that we might be saved from the consequences of our sin. And that's true. How is that true? Gloriously true. But listen, listen. That's only part of the gospel. That's only part of it. The other part is restoration. The restoration of our fellowship with, and our relationship with God. The restoration of this world. And the restoration of personal, up-close fellowship with God. That's the last part of the gospel. Yes, there's death, there's resurrection, and there's redemption. But there is also restoration restoration. And when it comes to prophecy, restoration is the primary theme, including this prophecy, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's part of the good news of restoration. The good news of restoration. Part of the testimony of Jesus. Part of 
the gospel, the good news of Jesus isn't just about the past, but the future. It's not just about the past, the gospel. It's about the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the future, what we usually call eternal life. When we say eternal life, when you say eternal life, whether you knew it or not up to this point, you were referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the future of the gospel that was promised and demonstrated and lived out and spoken by none other than Jesus himself. It's the good news of restoration. Because of that, because it's such good news, and entirely true, the angel says in the second part of verse 9, and these are the true words of God. Because of that, John falls at the angel's feet. Messenger of God that he is, speaking truth as he does, awesome in appearance and power that he is, John falls to his feet and, and begins to worship him. It, it's understandable, as, as amazing as the angels are. Described for us in the Bible in ways like winds and, and flames of fire. Winds as in they can breathlessly and smoothly, smoothly go wherever they want in a moment's notice. And, and flames of fire like lighting up the sky. Think Christmas with the shepherds. They were overwhelmed. Of course, John would be overwhelmed by that. Especially with the truth added to it. He falls at his feet, to which the angel says in verse 10, you must not do that, exclamation. <laughs> you must not do that. I wonder if the angel in that moment felt both embarrassed and a little bit shuddering before the Lord. That someone would express to him what was only due to God. You must not do that, he said. I am a, here it is, fellow servant with you and your brothers. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers. In other words, I'm not worthy of worship. Yes, I'm vastly different than you in ability and power, John, but we both serve and we both serve the same master. Lock that in. We both serve, he's saying, and we both serve the same master before whom the ground is level. The ground is level. We're different than angels. Yes, yes. But we all serve just as they do. And we all serve the same master before whom the ground is completely level. Level for one another. And level with the angels. Assuming, of course, that we hold to the same truth, the testimony of Jesus. That's the next thing. We must hold to the testimony of Jesus. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, verse 10, your brothers and sisters in Christ, who hold to the testimony of Jesus, his witness to the work of God. That's the testimony of Jesus, his witness to the work of God in him and through him. It's his sacrifice of forgiveness. It's his victory over death. It's his declaration of redemption. It's his promise of restoration. That's the testimony of Jesus. You want to talk about a, a, a laden phrase, a weighty phrase. Woo! 
the testimony of Jesus, all the things that he did and declared. And assuming we hold to that, assuming we stand on that, assuming that is the conviction of our heart and our soul, we're fellow servants with the angels, partners in the work of ministry that God has before ordained that we should do it, that we should walk in it. Following and worshiping the same master with the angels, we are partners, we are fellow servants of the one and only master who alone deserves our worship. The marriage supper of the Lamb is part of the gospel, the good news of restoration, the testimony of Jesus. Then in the second part of verse 10, after the angel gave his reason for worshiping God, namely that we serve the same master, ground at the throne is level and we serve the same master. After the angel gives his reason for worshiping God, John gives his own puts his own commentary there on the last sentence of verse 10. His reason for worshiping God and God alone. Namely, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The word for indicating that what follows is the reason for worshiping God and not angels. That much is clear. The rest of the sentence, however, nearly defies explanation. I spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure this out. Commentaries are largely useless in that respect because it's so difficult. And so what I'm about to relate to you, I hold loosely to, but it sure does resonate with my heart and soul. You see if it does yours. What does it mean that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, and how does it relate to the previous sentences? I think it's this. The angel says worship God because we share the same master. John says worship God because we share the same message. The same message from God, a.k.a. the gospel, the testimony of Jesus. So, so dial that in. The angel says worship God because we serve the same master. John says worship God because we share the same message, the testimony of Jesus. He repeats from the angel's quote. And that testimony, John says, is the spirit or the essence of all prophecy. The spirit or the essence of all foretelling of what's to come. The last part of verse 10. The, the testimony of Jesus, the gospel, is the spirit of prophecy. The essence of all that's foretold about the future. Uh, namely, life from death. New from old. Righteousness from sin. Restoration from destruction. Is that not the essence of the gospel? And therefore the essence or spirit of prophecy, as John is saying? It totally is. That's the essence of the gospel, new from old, life from death, restoration from destruction, and that's the essence or the spirit of prophecy, the message of hope 
from hopelessness. Hope from hopelessness. It's the essence or spirit of the gospel. It's the essence and spirit of prophecy. And it's that hope that paints the bottom line for us. The marriage supper of the Lamb is part of the gospel because it's the culmination of all our hope. The marriage supper of the Lamb is part of the gospel, the testimony of Jesus, because it's the culmination, part of prophecy that it is, it's the culmination of all our hope. It's the fulfillment of all our expectation. It's the realization of all our anticipation, especially the restoration part of the gospel. It's the focus and the goal and the end of all to come. Restoration is. And a big part of that restoration is the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, I would say it's all of that. It's the culmination, the marriage supper of the Lamb is, of all our hope in Christ Jesus. That's the first truth. The marriage supper of the Lamb is part of the gospel, part of the good news of God's work to restore all things and fulfill our hope. It's that big. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time showing you at least the first reason for why that's true. That it is the fullest part of the restoration promised in the gospel and the fullest part of our hope of all that's to come. It starts with this. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a wedding celebration. It's part of the gospel, first. And second, it's a wedding celebration. Go back to verse 6. It says that John heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. The voice implying that it's in unison. That we're going to be articulating these things all together, not just a mishmash of a bunch of noise, but rather it's going to be one voice from the multitude. I love that. He heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. Saw that all the way back in chapter 1. Like the roar of many waters, think Niagara Falls, and the sound of mighty peals of Thunder, think a typical thunderstorm around here, and the farmers could use some of that. Heard the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Can you hear it? Reverberating back and forth, the multitude stretching as far as the eye could see. So loud that you can feel it. He heard them crying out, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Not Hallelujah. 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 He, he heard us, John, 
says it in the past tense because he experienced a vision from God while he was on the island of Patmos, speaking of something that is yet future to us. And he hears us saying someday before the throne with a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Like the sound of the roar of waters and the peals of thunder. Echoing back and forth. Reverberating in our hearts and souls. Creating in us even more praise. Hallelujah, praise God, praise Yahweh. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Our God, the only God, the sovereign God, God Almighty. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Standing before the throne at the end of the age with people from all over the world and all over time declaring our praise to the one who just finished conquering the world, who just finished conquering all, who just finished conquering all of the sin of the fallen universe that he created perfect at the beginning? Can you imagine standing before the one who, decla who declares that, that it's finished? Who declared that it's finished? Standing before the one who brought this age to a close. Standing before the one who fulfilled every single thing, every jot and every tittle that this book has in it. Can you imagine? I hope so. Because that's our future. That's us someday. You and me and you and you together with all the saints over all of time from all over the world. That's us someday. With everyone who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior crying out at the top of our lungs, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And no wonder, after all that's transpired, after all that God has done, after all the events of the end times, like what else is there to say other than praise God? What else is there? The Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. What else is there to do except celebrate? Especially with a wedding at hand, a wedding between us and Jesus. The marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be a wedding celebration between us and Jesus, we're not going to be like standing on the sidelines, you know, we're not going to be like sitting out in the crowd and watching, you know, the, the bride and the groom up on the altar. Like, we are going to be the bride. We are going to be at the altar. We are going to be at the throne. It's going to be our wedding. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult. That's exult with a you as in revel and celebrate in triumph. How fitting is that given what has just taken place at the end of the great tribulation and the end of the millennium. We'll come back to that. Rejoice in triumph. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, the praise, the credit, the exaltation with an A. For the marriage of the Lamb, that's Jesus, has come and his bride has made herself Ready. His bride, referring to what? The church. The church. 
the fellowship of the redeemed. It's a metaphor used throughout the Bible for the people of God, from Isaiah and Hosea to Jesus and Paul. The bride is used as a metaphor throughout the scriptures for the people of God on this side of the cross, namely the church, us. We're the bride. The church is the bride who has made herself ready at that point here in Revelation 19, 6 to 10. The church is the bride who's made herself ready for marriage. Marriage to none other than Jesus. The final step in our salvation. The consummation of all that's been promised for all time. Him with us and us with him forever and ever. It's a wedding. It's a wedding officiated by God the Father. Oh, I loved officiating my daughter's weddings. But I am nothing like the God above who's going to officiate that wedding, who's going to lead that celebration, who's going to join us no longer seen dimly and from afar, but now face to face with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's going to be a wedding and it's going to be a celebration along with it. Both and. A celebration. What the angel calls the marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 9. You see it? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. A, a marriage and marriage supper. A marriage in verse 7 and a marriage supper in verse 9. A ceremony and a reception all in one. Which makes it a party for the ages. A party of parties for the ages. And I'm not just saying that to be clever or cute. Like when you combine rejoicing and exulting with the you and praise and marriage after an eternity of preparation on God's part and what seems like an eternity on our part of waiting for it, when you put all of that together, like you've got a party on your hands. You've got singing and dancing and, and joyfulness on your hands. Like you've never sing and danced before. It's going to be a celebration that beats all celebrations. And once again, no wonder. Our faith will give, sight, give way to sight and our union will be complete. Our faith will give way to sight and our union will be complete. No longer seen with the eyes of our heart but face to face, no longer dimly, but clearly, no longer spiritually, but physically, physically. The Lord Jesus himself in his glorified body and us in our glorified bodies. Physical as they are and will be. Tangible to the touch. The marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be a wedding celebration between us and Jesus that beats all just like old times. Just like old times. You see, the entire description here is based on first century Jewish marriage traditions. First century Jewish marriage traditions. Traditions comprised of two main events back in John's day a betrothal or engagement, and a ceremony. Remember betrothal? Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Official, very, very formal type of engagement. Back in that day, Jewish weddings 
com were comprised of a betrothal and a ceremony, normally separated by a period of time, the betrothal and the ceremony, separated by a period of time during which the bride and the groom were considered husband and wife and were expected to be faithful to one another, but they weren't fully joined. I hope bells and whistles are going off in your head at this point. If they're not, let me just ring it for you. <laughs> it's just like we are connected to Christ right now and we are expected to be faithful to him though we're not yet with him in person. See? Then, then in the Jewish marriage traditions of the day, when the big day came, oh, this, this is awesome. When the big day came, the wedding would start with a processional to the bride's house followed by a return to the groom's house. Come on. <laughs> followed by a return to the groom's house for a feast, a celebration, a big bash, a dinner. Just like Jesus is going to come for us someday to our house and eventually take us to his. So the marriage supper of the Lamb is a wedding celebration like old times. The best part of which is that it's already started. We're in the time in between. Our wedding celebration, our wedding ceremony, awaiting the celebration has already started right where we sit. As we wait for the bridegroom to take us unto himself that where he is, we may be also. John 14, 3. Just like old times. Just like current times. Except this wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb between us and Jesus, it's a celebration that never ends. It's a celebration, a wedding celebration that never ends. Ever. I remember the reception of our last daughter to get married. Remember that? And I especially remember how I did not want it to end. I just didn't want it to end. I mean, we, we ate and we danced and we talked, we ate some more, we laughed, we sang, we reminisced with people, we caught up with everybody, and, and then we went back to the dance floor and danced even more. And trying as much as I possibly could to keep up with the young people and never, ever wanting it to end. It was, it was just joy unspeakable, a foretaste of glory divine, an absolute blast. I remember it. I remember it. something we'll never have to do at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember. We'll never have to remember the celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb because it's never 
going to end. It's never going to end. Far from a sit-down dinner where we all get up at some point and go home, we're going to be home. We're going to feast on the goodness of God and never get full, praise God. We're going to celebrate the night away and never get tired. Literally, literally, on both fronts, we're going to celebrate the night away and never get tired because there will be no night, the Bible says, Revelation 21, 25, and our glorified bodies will never grow faint. How good is that? Think about the best wedding, reception, celebration, party you've ever been to. I hope it was your own. Or maybe your daughter's. All I remember from ours is that I didn't get a piece of the cake. I'm almost over it. I'm going to eat cake in, in heaven. Because the marriage supper of the Lamb is a wedding celebration that never ends. And it's all going down on the new earth. It's a wedding celebration between us and Jesus, like old times, that never ends, on the new earth. On the new earth, under a new heaven, because that's the first time that we will be in the presence of God the Father. Hear me on this. I'll try to show this to you. It's the first time that we're going to be in the presence of God the Father, which is the focal point of our praise, or who is the focal point of our praise in verse 6. Look back at it there. Hallelujah, John heard. For the Lord our God the Almighty, God the Almighty reigns. God the Almighty different than the Lamb, God the Son, in verse 7. Speaking, God the Almighty is a reference to God the Father, while the Lamb is a reference to God the Son in verse 7. We're going to be in the presence of God at the marriage supper. God the Father. God the Father. And that won't happen until this earth passes away and the new earth is brought forth. Skip ahead to Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2. Just for a few minutes here. Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2. John is still writing. He says, then, Revelation 21, 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. New heaven and a new earth. The first earth had passed away. That's after the return of Christ. Catch this. Here's the sequence. That's after the return of Christ, which is after the great tribulation. So it's after the great tribulation, after the return of Christ, after the battle of Armageddon, which we will get to in a few weeks, and, and after the millennium, and after the great white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20. After all of that, heaven and earth as we know it will cease to exist and be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. That sounds so outlandish, I wouldn't preach it if the Bible didn't explicitly say it. But I sure do praise God for it. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city on this new earth. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice this phrase. Prepared as a bride adorned 
for her husband, just like the bride in chapter 19, ready and adorned in fine linen, as it says there. So New Jerusalem on the new earth is described not just as a city, a dwelling place, but as a bride. And verses 9 to 11 indicate that it's the bride of Christ, the church, the very same as what we find in chapter 19. Look down to verse 9, Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So the new Jerusalem on the new earth is not just a dwelling place for the church, but the church itself, both and. The same metaphor for two different things. Same metaphor for two different things. Our dwelling place, the place we live with God and describing us, the church. More importantly, for the point at hand, it's the first time we will be in both the presence of Jesus and the Father. We're going to be in the presence of Jesus when he returns and fights the battle of Armageddon and ushers in the millennium. He'll be with us for that thousand years or a very, very long time here on earth. But we won't be with God the Father. That won't happen until the end of the millennium, the great white throne judgment, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Our dwelling place on the new earth with God himself. Look at Revelation 22 verse 3. No longer still speaking of this new Jerusalem, our dwelling place on the new earth. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, a metaphor for identifying us as his own. We're going to be with the Father and Son, both, on the new earth, which is the very setting in chapter 19 for the marriage supper of the Lamb, implying that we're going to be all together under a new heaven in a new place when that marriage supper happens. A wedding, a perfect wedding in a perfect place for all time. Isn't it just like God in fulfilling his promise of restoration as part of the gospel? Isn't it just like God to bring about the marriage supper of the Lamb in an absolutely perfect setting with no sin, no shame, no darkness, no stain? That's the end toward which we're headed. A wedding celebration to complete the gospel and never end. And the more you anticipate it, the more you'll hold fast until he comes, 
and appreciate it when it gets here. The more you anticipate it, the more you'll hold fast until he comes and appreciate it when he arrives. Let's pray. Lord, we can't wait. Just flat out can't wait. Having tasted and seen so much of your goodness so far, God, we can't wait for what's to come. Having the eyes of our heart open to the truths of your word, we can't wait for your return. We can't wait, God, for the wedding bells ringing on eternity's shore, calling us home to the place that you have prepared. Oh, God, fill our hearts with the hope of that. Fill our souls with the joy and anticipation of that, we pray. Do it, Lord, as only you can do it via your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.